0: Oh, mm-hmm. oh, mm-hmm. Welcome to Faith and Fable, a pastoral podcast that discusses common and often controversial topics from a biblical perspective. My name is Matt Miller. And I am Matt Henry,
1: and how are you doing? Uh, fine. You weren't prepared for that. You thought no. we were going to jump right into eschatology. Well, it's been a couple weeks. That's why I thought we'd reintroduce ourselves to everybody. <laughs> yes. Well, so, I'm I walking. guess we're all done. <laughs> <Interesting>. <laughs> we have several uh, podcasts we need to record today. So
0: let's Uh, do it. Okay, so we we are in uh, Systematic Theology 3 Eschatology, uh, and today we're going to talk final judgment. Um, And so much like the return of Christ, uh, which is what we covered last time, uh, the Bible speaks somewhat plainly, but also limitedly about this one as well. And so again, there's only so much to be said, but of course, like most things, various views have developed um, however, since we are pre-millennial in our approach, uh, that's the view that we're gonna give here. Yeah, but we'll touch on the others. Yes, we will. So uh, the final judgment, um, let's talk first of all about the unfolding of that final judgment. Before you go any further,
1: your preference in spelling, do you like the American spelling or the, you sp- spelled it American style without the E in judgment. Do you like that or the British spelling?
0: I don't have a preference. Whatever doesn't give me a red squiggly. That's all I, that's all I care about. Okay. Uh, why do I go you? back
1: and forth. Okay. Uh, everyone's why I want to be British. <clears throat> but you're right, that red squiggly does annoy me. I accidentally said add it to my uh, spell check. So now it doesn't judge me either way.
0: Hmm. The people are fascinated. Fascinating. This. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Um, okay, so from a, uh, for, from a premillennial perspective, the scripture presents the final judgment, here's a fancy word, as an event complex. Um, that sounds psychological. So it's, well, it's, it's the idea that... I know, go um, ahead. Yeah, well, I'm not doing this for you, so let me explain <laughs> this. Um, <laughs> Shut up, in <laughs> other words. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, so when you think of an event, you think of just one thing. But an event complex is where there's multiple things happening, but you look at it as a whole. And so that that's how the premillennialists view the final judgment. Uh, and it begins or more or less kicks off at Christ's return. Uh, and it's an event complex because it will unfold in two moments uh, in which actually two separate resurrections are taking place. So from a distance, you could just call that whole thing the final resurrection or judgment. Sure. Um, but once you get into the details, it's there's multiple things there. So the first moment, or you could say the first resurrection takes place or happens immediately when Christ returns. And what he will do there, as we talked about last time, is he will raise the righteous unto judgment. And then the second moment or the second resurrection that will take place is after the millennium, in which at that point he'll raise the unrighteous unto judgment. So there's two resurrections happening there. But again, that's uh, exclusively uh, to the premillennial view. Uh, the ah-mill or the postmill views see the final judgment as just a singular moment in which Christ will return and He will raise the unrighteous and the righteous together. Uh, and this is a single resurrection of all the dead, and they will all be immediately ushered into that final judgment together. Um, So, regardless of your position, though, what is key to understand is that both the righteous and the unrighteous shall be raised unto a final judgment. That's orthodox Mm -hmm. teaching. So, while the logistics of that is, of course, debated between the various views, what is key to affirm is that a resurrection and judgment is coming for both.
1: All right. So, we're going to just give some scriptural teaching on that final judgment. Uh, First of all, uh, we'll say the judgment has a fixed date in the future, and Christ himself is that great judge. So in Acts 17, verses 30 and 31, uh, Paul says on Mars Hill, Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all everywhere should repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. So here we see that God has established a day in which he will judge the world in perfect righteousness and for which there will be no escape. The scope of that judge, uh, of this judgment, will include the whole world. Uh, The judge here is, as I already said, depicted as being Christ himself. He is the one who has been appointed to judge. And since Christ himself was raised, that will be the proof to all men that his judgments are righteous and true and final. The next passage is in John chapter 5, verse 22, and also in verses 26 and 7. Uh, Jesus said there, For not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son. For just as the Father has life in himself, so also he gave to the Son also to have life in himself. And he gave him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. So again, you see, that the Father has delegated the authority to judge to the Son. He is the one with whom we will all have to stand before and give an account to, which I always find fascinating because everything centers on who is Jesus and do we embrace him or not, do we see him as Lord or not, and all the ones who just basically dismiss him for whatever reason. Uh, I'm just—it's like, what a what a shock— um, when you see him and you, you got all your arguments, right? Yeah. Um, And, and he's, he's just like, I'm totally unimpressed. (laughs) Um, What a, what a frightening day
0: uh, for the unbeliever. Uh, Truly. Um, Second, uh, in some way, and this is one that a lot of people actually don't know about or aren't aware of, but in some way, believers will participate in the work of judgment. So first Corinthians six, two through three, Paul there, says, and rhetorically, I might add, or do you not know, which assumes they do, which I find fascinating, do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is judged by you, are you not competent to constitute the smallest law? Courts. Verse three, do you not know that we shall judge angels? Uh, Then how much more matters of this life?
1: Yeah, that's a context where they're suing, and they're going outside into the yeah. Um, outside courts. He's like, look, if you're going to be judging the whole world,
0: surely you can take care of this, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> this um, situation. So what Paul is doing then is he's rebuking them, yeah. right? That is improper. Um, and, and the reason that he gives for why you should not be dragging brothers and sisters into court is the church is not accountable to the world, but ultimately the world will be accountable to the church, which is fascinating, and there's a lot there that you could just run on, but that's for a different time, I guess. Um, but but note the two categories of creature that belie- believers will be judging. First of all, believers shall judge the world, again, verse two, um, and by the way, I think this gives some evidence of the premillennial position. Um, for if both are raised and brought to judgment together, how are believers then gonna judge the world? Um, the implication seems to indicate that believers have already been raised and already gone through a judgment, and so, in the pre view, this, this has already happened before the millennium. So, this judgment of the world is taking place now after the millennium. Yeah. Uh, it also shows a close connection between Christ and his body, which is the church. Uh, we already saw that Jesus is the judge, and yet here his people are included in this judgment in some way. It it, it, it really does. It's one
1: of those that's fun to think
0: about, though, what what does that look like? Right. Um and then second, uh, in verse 3, Paul states that believers will also judge angels. Now, that's very interesting. Um, we don't know what that actually will entail definitively. Uh, the question always is, is, is that speaking of unholy angels only? So, in other words, demons. Uh, or does it also include holy angels who are going to be judged and, and rewarded for their good works? Um, don't really know. I, I think it seems best to see it only as unholy angels, uh, which are the demons. And the reason is because the unholy angels would, of course, parallel the unholy humans in verse oh, 2, I which is the world. Yeah. Uh, but it is difficult to be too dogmatic on that.
1: It, it's interesting, though, in that passage, you see then that that the two enemies of the church, the world and even the demonic realm, ultimately will... Like everything else, gets flipped on its head. Um, you know, I, very fascinating. I, I think we again. I I think sometimes we try to push. This is not in our script, so I won't go anywhere with it. But um, an over over realized eschatology, where we try to take something that's not yet now, and we try to do it. Uh, the church is not in that position right now. Uh, that 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 is waiting for the next stage. Um and that's something just to think through, uh, at, especially as we think through uh, our relationship to our governing authorities and stuff like that. Where we we, I think there's a lot of strength in the idea that there's different realms and the the state doesn't have the authority to step into the realm that belongs to the church. But I think there's also somewhat of a misunderstanding that the realm of the church is not a position of strength and authority in this age. Um, it's it's an age to come, but that, that would be something yeah. we'd have
0: to... Def- Which also brings in a lot of uh, just when you're thinking about how much the church keeps running to the secular ideologies in our day. I'm um, thinking of like CRT and yeah, social justice stuff. Um, it's like y- you realize that you're not accountable to the world; the world's accountable to you. And yet, I have to imagine that there's a lot of displeasure coming to the heart of God because He sees His church trying to adopt the ideologies of the very thing that it's going to judge hmm. for pursuing those things. Yeah, and yet we're pursuing them. You know. Yeah. So,
1: so third thing: uh, Christians will themselves be judged. So, in 1 Corinthians 3, verse 15, uh, if any man's work is burned up, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet so through fire. Um, the context here is speaking of teachers within the church. The weak or or bad teacher's work will be shown to be what it truly is in the end, for it will be burned up. Um, the key phrase for our purposes is this idea of suffering loss. It indicates the, um it indicates that judgment involves some sort of reward, um, and and this is also something that how how do you suffer loss right? So while this passage is actually talking about teachers as a focus, it nonetheless depicts reward and loss thereof. Um, but again, a lot of questions of how do you suffer loss when. Right, You're getting eternal life. So, in Second Corinthians 5.10, we also see it, um, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Again, the audience here is Christians. So, the we in this passage is important when he says we must all appear before the judgment seat. And so as a result, this judgment seems to involve more than the idea of being in or out or Another way of saying that is saved or not saved. Further, since Paul includes the important prepositional phrase according to what he has done, whether good or bad, we know he can't be talking about salvation or it would blow everything else out of the water. For Paul knows that salvation is by grace alone through faith alone, in Christ alone. But here, since the ground of the judgment is our good works, not the finished work of Christ, this seems to be a judgment of reward or loss thereof. The, and, and Paul's explicit purpose in this passage is to provide the motive for faithfulness. He wants us to be courageous in doing good works. That's what he talks about in verse 6. And to have our ambition to be that which is pleasing to the Lord. He talks about that in verse 9. So his motive to encourage us toward faithfulness is our heavenly reward. So in some way, it seems there will be given degrees of reward. Again, this is not a judgment for salvation or condemnation. That's done. So there is something work about working for rewards. In fact, we're even told elsewhere to store up our treasure or reward in heaven. That's out of Matthew 6. Uh, so, Greg Allison says it this way. He says, this is unexplainable because we'll already be abiding at the very apex of perfection. Not only are we given the cake of salvation, but God puts all kinds of sweet frostings on it, the fullness of the fullness of joy. And have, again, maybe we can get into the nature of rewards and loss on on a separate sub-podcast somehow, but... Um, yeah, how, if you enter into eternity, into the new heavens and earth, what does it look like? Mm-hmm. Um, I got some suspicions, but that's all they are. They're all suspicions. Right.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Okay, then fourth of all, uh, uh, unbelievers will also be judged at this point. So Revelation 20, 11 through 15 says, And I saw a great white throne, and him who sat on it, um, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small standing before the throne and books were opened and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books, according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead, which were in it and the death and death and Hades gave up the dead, which were in them. And they were judged every one of them, according to their deeds and death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So here, unbelievers uh, are said to be judged according to their works, Uh, degrees of punishment will be meted out for them. Again, we see a judgment happening, as he says here, according to their deeds. Um, So we have no idea what this means or what this is gonna look like, but it does indicate sort of a, a, a gradation in God's righteous penalty. Um, so, just as God issues greater or lesser reward for the righteous, it appears he will also issue greater or lesser condemnation for the unrighteous. Which
1: is, again, is fascinating. It's like hell is hell is hell. Right. But in some way, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, then, fifth, angels will be judged. Uh, so, in First Corinthians 6 3, Do you not know that we shall judge angels? Now, we've already seen angels will be judged, that we'll be doing the judging. The point now to understand is this helps us understand the nature of the final judgment. It's not merely a judgment for humans, but also of creation. And that includes that whole unseen realm that God also has created. We need to remember humans are not the only part of his creation. We're simply another aspect of it. Humans hold a very special ranking in that we are the only part which bears God's very image, but we're not all there is. However, we will judge angels. How this will work out is still not known, but it's a privilege and it speaks to the place of humans in God's redemptive history. I'm curious, do you think that's also got maybe an aspect of... um, Bearing God's image,
0: yeah, uh, I'd have to imagine so. It's, yeah, I I just thought of that just as and, we were, and it's and it's not. I mean, what blows my mind is Christ as his resurrected body. So for eternity, future, he will in some way be human. Yes, um, which is very weird yes. to think about. But uh, he didn't take on. The image of the angelic, yeah, right. He he took on flesh, and so there's this 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 weird new binding relationship between humanity and God. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I, I have to imagine it has to do with bearing the image. Hmm.
1: You? Yeah, I oh. I, I, th- I no, I think so too. I um, I I think I I think the whole imago Dei concept is. It's it's frustrating because I think it's very um fascinating what it is, but trying to nail it down is hard. But but here's just one of those things that the angels are so much more powerful and greater than us, and yet not forever. Um at some point they will be beneath us and we will literally be in that position of judging. And you're like, that's just that's just crazy. And so I just think it's just another natural outflow of of that image. But hmm. Uh, Again, it doesn't say, so we're guessing. And I think that's the hard part about this whole thing is there's so many tempting ways that we can guess and talk and people get all excited about, but we have to be careful that we don't insert more than what the Scripture actually is telling us. Um, it, It gives some really tantalizing hints without ever telling us.
0: So, it's it's sufficient to know that we are yeah. in, made in his image, but what that means he's not given to us, yeah at least right now. I think that'll be part of that, is that Ephesians 2 that just talks about um, for all of eternity he will be unfolding the manifold mm-hmm. wisdom mm-hmm. to us of yeah. uh, who he is and the nature of his grace. Uh, six, and finally, at the center of the judgment is that God is holy and just in all his judgments. So, first of all, God's judgments are impartial. We know this from 1 Peter 1:17, where he writes, And if you address as Father, the one who impartially judges according to each man's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay upon earth. Uh, Romans chapter 2 and verse eleven: There will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil of the Jew first and also of the Greek. But glory and honor and peace to every man who does good, to the Jew first, also to the Greek. And then why? For there's no partiality with God. Uh, Second of all, God's judgments are also said to be true and just, Revelation 19, 1-2. John states, After these things I heard, as it were, a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God, because his judgments are true and righteous for he has judged the great harlot who is corrupting the earth with her immorality, and he has avenged the blood of his bondservants on her. And then third, God's judgments are final and eternal. Uh, So Matthew 25, 45 through 46, here he is speaking of separating the sheep from the goats. It's what he's been talking about. And then he writes, then he will answer them saying, truly I say to you to the extent that you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me and these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life.
1: That whole idea of his judgment, it, I like how there's just not going to be any wiggle room, though. Um,
0: no it, one's going to be debating.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's just going to be, you know, and, and yet too late, too. It's done. Um, so there are three contemporary challenges currently to the eternal conscious punishment of the wicked. So you saw that they will go in away into eternal punishment, the righteous into eternal life. So there are these challenges of, of what is exactly meant by that. These have occasionally reared their head in the history of the church, but they're primarily contemporary. The first is what you know, is known as universalism, and that it simply says that all will be saved, even the most wicked. And support for that view uh, would come out of a passage like Romans 5:18 so then as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men even so through one act of righteousness there resulted justification of life to all men and so the Universalists take that parallel there in a very strict sense they say well if the one transgression the sin of Adam resulted in condemnation for all meaning every person who ever will be born then the one act of righteousness which was Christ's sacrifice was will result in justification for all. Again, everyone who was will ever be born. The problem, though, is that it ignores the context, and the verse that came before, which says, this gift is applied only to those who will receive it, and not to uh, all who shall receive, and not all shall receive it. So the all, in verse 18, is actually very important to define. The all is not all mankind, but all
0: those who will receive the gift of eternal life. Yeah. Uh, classic example of a universalist is Karl Barth. Um, he developed a view of election that was very unhelpful. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, based on Ephesians 1 and many other passages, well, not many, but some other passages that he'll point to, he viewed election not as something which applies to individuals or necessarily even the church as a collective, but the the election there, he said, he argues, is always talking about Christ himself. For Christ is the elect one, in other words. So as a result, he reasoned that the whole of creation was redeemed by Christ because all of creation is in Christ. Um, and so as a result, since we're all now in Christ, in the end all shall be saved whether we believed in him or not. Um, so for Bart, the only reason to give the gospel was to just help people sort of subjectively experience God in this temporary life. But if it, I mean, it doesn't really matter because you'll end up in heaven anyway. That's the yeah. logical outflow. You of just his won't
1: know that you're saved right now,
0: right? And you're missing out on something now. Which, yeah, never mind. Yeah. I won't go anywhere. So, at one level, if you read Bart, you you can appreciate his desire to exalt Christ and that whole union or participation with Christ language, but it's terrible theology that has very little support, and it's. and and he's forced to ignore many passages that speak to the contrary. Right. So there, oh, go ahead. Well, there's also a a theological position called the wideness of God's mercy. You ever heard of that one? Oh yeah, Bill Graham actually uh, invoked it near the end of his life. Yeah, Um, the the idea here is that God's love, his forgiveness, his mercy is so wide open that it will ultimately conquer all rebellious hearts. A version of that is seen in um, what hit, evangelicalism by storm about 10 years ago was it rob bell's love wins um there there there's a problem in emphasizing one of god's attributes over another if it's just god is love god is love god is love it completely ignores god is just or god is wrath or god is you know um so for the universalist there is no hell that's the bottom line uh if there is it is reserved only for satan or his minions uh in the end all humans will be saved they will be in heaven whether they believed in Jesus or not. And of course, that is very dangerous and very bad thinking.
1: Yep. Um, then there's something called conditional immortality. Uh, some major tenets to this. Immortality belongs to God and God alone. Immortality is a gift, divine gift given to believers in Jesus Christ. Non-believers at death will suffer for a time, that's the key, will suffer for a time, receiving a punishment for their sins due to God's righteous judgment. However, they do not have the gift of immortality. Thus, they will cease to exist. The point, then, is that there is a conscious punishment for the wicked, but it's not an eternal conscious punishment. Again, almost no biblical support uh, for this, but it is a result really of philosophical thinking. And it all premises itself on that God alone is immortal. Right. Um yeah. And then there's annihilationism or or Yeah. Yeah. Very similar to the previous one. Um uh, again, the major tenets at death. Unbelievers will experience suffering and punishment for their sins, and then God will destroy or annihilate them. So there is conscious punishment, but not eternal conscious punishment. Uh, very similar to the previous one we just said, conditional immortality. However, this view is different in that it doesn't address the notion of immortality at all, whereas conditional immortality is driven by that whole concept of immortality. Uh, in conditional immortality, the unrighteous will die and endure God's punishment, but they will eventually fade away into a cessation of existence, where annihilationism, on the other hand, views God as more proactive in this destruction of the wicked, um, actively doing it, right? Right. God is more proactive in his destruction of the wicked. God proactively annihilates them after they've been punished for some time. So the difference is subtle, but it has to do with how active or passive God is in the cessation of the person after they have en- edu- endured a punishment for some time. <laughs> I mean, you know what? That's classic the- theology, though, right? It's when you're not really constrained by the text, but the philosophy of
0: theology. Um, I, I, You know, I, I feel God is more just if he can become more passive somehow in a person fading away versus he actively destroys them.
1: Yeah, everybody who holds to annihilationism of, of one sort or another, it's somehow they see that eternal punishment um, is unjust, or it's cruel, or it's it, it's not consistent with the character of God. And so, but it's a philosophical argument. So if these things are true, then we're going to go with this. So, some guy says, hey, I think only God possesses true immortality. Therefore, they'll eventually just fade to black because they're not granted anything. Um, but it's all philosophical, and and it people can buy into it and think it works, but It really, I think, it just reveals our love for philosophy rather than a love of the scripture, and letting the scripture ultimately be the final determiner. I, I, I'm much more comfortable in saying that the eternal punishment of the wicked is just because God says it's just. It's not like God has to obey an external set of rules that. We arbitrarily established and he must abide by he it, whatever God does is just
0: right. I, and well, that's at the heart like, of how it. hard is that? Yeah, that's at the heart of it. Is um, my notion of justice? I need to make God square with yeah. So let's we're going to come up with this thing that makes him not out to be cruel and unusual in my perspective. And it's it, like you're not yep. defined there by God's true justice from His scriptures as He's revealed it. But yeah,
1: He does as in whatever, he does whatever pleases him. The scripture's clear about that, and yet we're really work hard at trying to not let him do whatever he wants to do. Yeah. Like we have a saying,
0: <laughs> <laughs> Right. Um, so what's the biblical support for that position? Well, very little. Um, you got passages like Second Thessalonians one nine, which says, and these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction— away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. So here, the annihilationist is compelled to make sense of the idea of eternal destruction in that verse. Um, Notice it's not eternal punishment or eternal penalty, but eternal destruction. And so as a result, they don't see it as conscious torment, but rather just simply a cessation of existence Um, for a person is utterly undone or just destroyed. They cease to exist, they go away. Uh, But beyond that one verse uh, where, again, much is read into that single phrase and many other passages must be ignored, biblical evidence, frankly, is scant. Um, So the greatest challenge to these views is Matthew 25, 45 through 46, which says, Then he, God, will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Uh, so there you don't have the word destruction, but punishment. And note the parallels between eternal life and eternal punishment. Here it's not merely destruction, but actually punishment. Um, yeah, in other words, the destruction is in itself
1: an, a state of eternally being... Punished. Or or even uh, destroyed, uh, yeah. uh, which is versus a punctiliar that they will be go to destruction. That would be one thing, but eternal destruction is that you're always in the state of being destroyed, uh which is actually a terrifying idea uh, that you're in a perpetual state of being undone. Uh and that's the punishment if that's
0: yeah it's, a, it's the second death so you're dead but you're always dying yes it's, that's it, my point you know yes
1: <laughs> what's horrible <laughs> I mean but you're you're separated from the God of life you're he, he will not grant that to you yeah. but but
0: yeah whew. yeah so theological warrant for these contemporary challenges again how can God be perfectly loving and still send people to the eternal punishment very common question how can there be an eternal punishment for a temporary sin that's another one. Uh, question is, is how shall we respond to that? Um, and some people have those as legitimate questions, um, honest questions, especially when you're wrestling with God or sure. when you first came to faith.
1: And and wisdom says you have to be sensitive. When you hear a person, there are those who are just being jerks and yeah. trying to argue, and there's others, like you said, they they have sincere concern. They're, yeah, yeah, they're trying to work this out, and you you can't answer everyone quite the same way because you have to be
0: sensitive to why. Yeah. So, it, it's a theological response of how can an all-loving loving God send a person to eternal, puni- so that then you need to give a theological response, um, which means not overtly biblical. I, I mean, you can make a distinction there, but Um, How do you respond to that? First, that that assertion or that question ignores the fact that God is eternal himself and therefore infinitely and righteous righteous and holy. Uh, And so as such, the penalty must fit the crime. Since all sin is ultimately sin against an infinite being, the penalty therefore must be infinite. Second, the assumption here is that once a person goes to hell, they no longer sin. Um, but there is no biblical evidence um, that anyone in hell will all all of a sudden just start loving God and cease from sinning. In fact, likely they're gonna just hate him all the more and they're gonna keep hating him. Uh, And so their eternal state will then therefore be one of just perpetual sin. So there you go, final judgment. Um, More could be said, I'm sure, but that's enough for now. Uh, Next time we'll talk about final topic in theology, new heavens and new earth. Uh, until then, make sure to tune in, join the conversation. Let us know your thoughts on the final judgment. Don't forget to like, share, comment, rate, and review. Connect with us on Facebook and Instagram. And tell a friend.